0: Uh, talking about temptation can be pretty intense. You know, I think that uh, temptation surrounds us with a lot of shame in the way we feel about it, the way that we react to it, and the way that um, um, we give in to it. Um, you know, and it's also really confusing a lot of times. It's very easy to get, be confused trying to separate truth from lie and trying to know what to do, what's right. And so um, I had a roommate one time in college. Um, you're kind of thinking, like, it's bad news to be roommate because. Uh, he talks about you in sermons, you know, like just my college roommates. Okay, my wife's fine. So, um, but I had this roommate in college, and he was a big dude. And I don't say it with any judgment. I mean, he he came to me and told me that he was excited that he was going to lose a hundred pounds, and I was I was happy for him. And he said, "I'm resolved to do it. I'm going to spend some money, get a health coach. I'm going to like take the steps. I'm going to I'm going to get healthy." And I thought, you know, good for you, man. That's that's a big deal. It's an important step. I'm glad you're doing that. And so he. Um, Had an appointment with his coach or whatever, and then he came back home. And I went out for something, came back, and I saw him literally four hours later, um, sitting on the couch eating a whole pizza. And I thought, "Hey, man, what happened? I thought you were working on getting healthy like three hours ago." And he said, "Well, I talked to the health coach, and you know, she told me that um, you know to like." build muscle first you have to go through a bulking phase and I'm just gonna go through that and I said did you tell her you've been doing the bulking phase for the last 10 years and you don't need another bulking phase and and uh he was frustrated with me and we talked through that and um, and uh but I said, well, did, you, did you like Google health coaches that will lie to me and tell me what I wanna hear? Is that what happened? Is that how you found her? How did you find this person who's willing to lie to you? But that's kind of what we do. Like that's, I mean, food is like this weird example because that's what Adam and Eve are tempted with in the garden and here Jesus tempted with food. And so food very much kind of psychologically represents what it what generally temptation is like. You know, I'm not going to, then I do. And then I, it overpromises, promises, under delivers and here we are. And I think that like, Food in particular is kind of a, a difficult thing for us, but what we do is we seek out lies that justify our desires. That's what my roommate did. He's like, I want to eat a whole pizza. I'll find someone who will pay me. It's okay to tell me to eat a whole pizza. That's what I I really want more than my goals is to do what I want in the moment and do what feels right in the moment, even if it makes me feel bad later. And so he seeks it out. But, you know, I've been training this little dog. I have a a seven-pound dog named Herman, um, and he's smaller than my full-grown dog um, who's eight pounds, you know, and so... um, But they they eat different foods because one's a puppy and one looks like a puppy, right? And one eats the puppy food that's, like, extra fattening, nutritious, made to help it gain weight. The other one eats, like, normal dog food. And so most of my dog training philosophy um, comes from my dad's coaching philosophy, which is even stupid nose pain, you know? So if it's doing something you don't want it to do, you hit it till it stops, and then it won't do it anymore. And that's kind of how it works. That only applies to training dogs, not to anything else, not parenting, certainly. But anyway, so, so what happens is... My dog has this food that's better, um, but it wants my other dog's food all the time. That's like its main thing is wanting the the wrong food. And it'll sit there in front of the bowl like this. (laughs) So his bowl is full of good, nutritious, yummy puppy food, and he wants the other dog's food. Even though it's worse for him, he just wants it because he can't have it. Something about this, I'm not supposed to have it, I must have it, you know, and that's Uh, The way that a lot of times temptation works for us. I don't even really want that, but because I can't have it, I think I really want that. And so he sits there and just gazes at it and stares at it all the time, and it's pretty sad, and he whines and he cries, staring at this other dog's food, which is objectively worse for him, right? You know, there's this full bowl of food that is good, and he stares at the food that's worse, that he can't have, and that's very much what it is to be tempted in our life, (laughs) Right? God has good things for us. That's one of the reasons why talking about temptation in Christianity is actually more difficult than talking about temptation in other worldviews. For example, in like the ancient Eastern, there's a a view of things, there's this evil force called Mara or Mara, and it comes at you and it gives you, and the evil forces are named delight and desire. Right? And, but the problem with that is in biblical Christianity is that delight and desire are inherently good. Right? God gives us good things to enjoy. God gives us great gifts that we're called to love and take part of. God, even the book of Ecclesiastes says like life is hard. The best thing you can do is enjoy your work and enjoy the fruits of your work with someone that you love. And so we're not coming at this from a Christian, from a Buddhist perspective that says extinguishing desire is the goal. Rather, desires good, so wanting food is good, wanting things is good, but also then like in the ancient Greek context, there's these power and possessions and passions that divide you and set you astray, and if you get ruled by these things, you're totally set off, and so again, the goal in Stoicism was to eliminate these desires, because these gross, nasty things of the flesh, they're going to set you astray, and we don't really want to be comforted by those things, but... but See in Christianity, the creation story is, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And so the desires are good, and the, the, the desires are are meaningful. And so a lot of times we think that to fight temptation, we just have to stop wanting things or start hating the world around us, and you end up having these weird reactions to food where I don't now I have this mixed relationship, I love it, and I hate it, and there's this mixed bag thing. So Christianity, because creation is good and pleasure is good and power is good and having things is good, and it but they can become disordered and they can become um, out of place. So it's a nuanced understanding of what temptation means in Christianity. It's not just a matter of wholesale rejecting desire or wholesale rejecting bad things, because all things, all desires, I think even, I would argue that all temptation is the source of trying to fulfill some good desire in a wrong way. Tuck it. Lust gluttony, greed. It's like we're all looking for good things, but we're trying to get them in the wrong way. It's the problem of means. It's the same thing with my dog. He's hungry. That's a good thing. That's good for a dog to be hungry. You hungry or you die. That's what happens when you're a dog. And, but he wants it fulfilled in the wrong way. And here we see Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And notice the things he's being tempted by are not necessarily bad. Food to be noticed, to rule over the kingdoms of the earth. Those aren't bad things. So the main thing that we see here in this is that Jesus is being tempted through false means to getting good things. I think most of us when we think through our understanding of morality and whatnot, um, we need to think through means more so than ends because everybody knows about like doing evil things, but I think it's, it's more a matter of getting good things through inordinate, disordered ways is the way Jesus is being tempted here. And notice also here how Jesus being tempted does not make him a sinner. I think a lot of people in this room, um, you're tempted in some gnarly ways ways you don't want to talk about, ways you don't want to say. Um, But notice, even the book of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. So it's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to want necessarily things that God doesn't want you to want. It's, it's only a sin when you act on it. And so one of the things we see here in Jesus is that he's tempted yet without sin. One of the things that I think it's important for us to cultivate is this habit of confessing our temptation. Not because it's something wrong that we need to um, repent of, but because then we can be known and seen and understood as we talk about our temptations. Because Jesus was tempted. There's no shame in being tempted. But the question we have to ask is, how come Jesus is so unlike us? Because we all give into temptation all the time. It's like our main thing, coming up for reasons to sin, <laughs> excuses. We all do that. I do that. You do that. That's, that's what makes us this room and what makes Jesus different than us is the fact that he always says no, and we often say yes. You know, I think sometimes we even might say, I had a good day that I didn't sin that much. And that's mostly just because you weren't tempted that much, not because we stood firm and stuff, you know. So how does Jesus do it? How does Jesus say no? Why does he say no? Because I think a lot of it, a lot, I want us to look at Jesus in this text and really think through, if I want to follow Jesus, then I need to say no like Jesus and how Jesus says no. That's the deal here. So here's what we're gonna see in this text. So that Jesus says no by love and for love. So by being the means and love being the end so love is the means and the ends of jesus obedience so jesus says no by love and for love we're going to see this um, revealed to us in this text so let's pray and then i'll walk us through it father thank you for your word thank you for sending your son Um, when we were in such a habit of saying yes to temptation you sent your son jesus to say no to temptation I pray that we can see in him a good and trustworthy savior and also a perfect and lovely teacher who's modeling for us the way forward. In the name of your son who's tempted here in this text, we pray, amen, amen. So Jesus says no by love, meaning the means of his um, ability to say no to temptation is actually love. The first one is he says no by love in the Father's spirit. Notice here um, verse four. Uh, or chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That is crazy. The fact that the spirit comes upon Jesus and tests him or leads him into being tested. See, again, a lot of times people think I'm being tempted, therefore there's something wrong with me. Jesus here is being tempted because there's something right with him. There is no room for us to feel shame about how we're tempted because Jesus, God in the flesh, is tempted even when he's full of the spirit and walking around in the wilderness. A lot of times what happens here is he's full of the Spirit and he's led to be tempted by the devil. We miss that whole part and we just see this Jesus who's like this strong ability to say no to things, but Jesus has the presence of the Father. Now think about this. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, that God is love, that they together have forever been existing in this loving, harmonious, connected relationship. Jesus takes on flesh and the Spirit is with him such that there's this intense relational connection that Jesus has with him, even while he's a Alone in the wilderness, he is not alone at all because the Spirit of God is with him, helping him, guiding him, leading him. That Jesus in the flesh on earth, even though he's God in the flesh, is not depending on his own wisdom or insight or ability or discipline. He's depending on the presence and the power of God. So often, I hear about all these tips and tricks and wisdom bits on how to fight temptation. Well, just do 20 push-ups till the desire goes away. Or, you know, all you got to do is fill in the blank. And all these little um, catchphrases, those are unbiblical means of resisting temptation. Rather, it is the noticing of the proximity and the power and the love of God with us, enabling us, speaking favor to us, that we're able to recognize and resist temptation. all the time when i sin what happens is i've fallen out of awareness of my pre- of the presence of the holy spirit with me or i've seen something i i want to do and so then i then begin to silence or purposely push away my awareness of god's presence so that i can with a clear conscience sin But notice, that's before I can walk into sin, I first have to stop walking in the Spirit. This is what the book of Galatians says, that Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That is a promise, that I can't be sinning when I'm walking in the Spirit. So if I find myself sinning, I also have found myself not walking in the Spirit. We can address the fruit all day long, trying to get myself to not walk in the flesh, but we have to address the root, which is the fact that I'm not walking in the Spirit, that I'm never alone that there are no private sin habits that God is with me and he loves me and he's connected to me and he is this powerful covenant loving presence with me every step of the way the spirit might lead you to be tested this has a lot to do lead you into being tested the spirit this is similar to how we grow and get healthy physically right you know you have a coach or a trainer who leads you into depths of pain you would never lead yourself so that you can get healthier and stronger, right? That's Part of our being tested is how we grow and how we withstand temptation. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Many people see that as a reference back to this, that he suffers in the wilderness and he learns obedience. Obedience is much like riding a bike. How do you learn it? You do it. There's no tips, like you, you grow and learn obedience by obeying. You don't wait till something else happens, you learn by doing it. So Jesus is led in the spirit and he's tempted by the devil. One of the things that's worth noticing here is after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, this is the most silly phrase in all of scripture, he was hungry. <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> you don't say, you know, um, 40 days and 40 nights, not eating He was hungry. You know, it sounds silly to us, but, you know, Matthew's really emphasizing the humanity of Jesus here, that Jesus is not here relying on his um, identity as God's son. He's here relying on the presence and the power of the Spirit, and also he physically is feeling this hunger. When you fast this long, one of the things that happens is you become, uh, you actually deal with insomnia (laughs) pretty severely. So he's got physical pain, he has stomach acid, he's a human, he has a body, it's eating away, it's painful, you know, I think we have a sign in my house growing up, it might still have a sign in my house right now, that says, I'm sorry for what I said when I was hungry, you know, who doesn't have that sign? Jesus doesn't have that sign, you know. Because we'd love to make excuses for why we were snippy, why we were mean, why we were unkind, I didn't sleep much, I was hungry, here's Jesus, hungrier than you've ever been, sleepier than you've ever been, obedient right we can empathize with people's physical situation you know if, if I know that someone's hungry and I find them being snippy I can, it helps me have a higher degree of empathy and it helps me be slower to judgment and that's good, empathy is good but we should never let that empathy become an excuse Jesus was very hungry full of the spirit You know, this is what happens a lot of times is when we're in physical pain, when we're tired, we feel like we're closer to our pain or our problems than we are to the Spirit of God. But I want to just say that, like, the Spirit of God is with us. This is how Jesus does it, that no matter how close the pain is, no matter how close the discomfort is, no matter how close or how long or how lonely, the Spirit of God is there with Jesus, helping him walk in obedience. Do you feel like the Spirit is with you all the time? Or what percentage of your time do you feel like you drift into this accidental or purposeful atheism? All the time, probably. All the time. God is dependent on the Spirit. Jesus, God, is dependent on the Spirit, God. If we think that we're better than Jesus, then we can do it without the Spirit. That's how that works. So here's the next thing. So he says no by love, by the the loving presence of the spirit, but he also says no by the word. Jesus here is not relying on his own wisdom or his own experience or his own advice. He's not saying, one time I heard a good tip about, he didn't read three blogs on how to do it. He didn't say seven surprising facts about you'll never guess number six and the any of this wisdom. No, he's relying on the father's word. He has hidden the word in his heart. This is how he responds each time to Satan. Verse four, but he answered, it is Written verse 7 again, it is written. Verse 10 for it is written. Jesus is not relying on his own wisdom or his own intelligence or his own schooling, he's relying on what his father says, leaning and standing firmly on the word of the father. Just to like just a word of encouragement here I know zero mature Christians who haven't spent serious, deliberate time hiding the word of the Lord in their heart, zero. This is what David says in the Psalms, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Why? Just because it's like, I think we can misunderstand that. It's like this Harry Potter thing where you like memorize all the magic phrases and you just kind of cast spells, and it's like this this tool book of like the Swiss Army knife of like, well, here's a verse for that, here's a verse for that, here's a verse for that, this kind of Swiss Army attack at verses. And that's not what this is talking about. Rather, God's word is his loving instruction to his people, saying, This is reality, that God's word reveals reality to us, that the lies are not just tempting good things, but the lies are actually asking us to live in not reality, that God's word in scripture is revealing reality to us. And so when we hide God's word in our hearts, not just memorizing it as anally as possible so we can say we did, but hiding in our hearts so it shapes us and us, we're able to live into reality, this world as it was actually created, rather than being tossed to and fro by all the lies. Jesus is able to quote scripture because scripture is revealing reality, not just Good advice. This is the Father's word and Jesus stands on it and he trusts it with his life. This book is not just something you do or you read or you study so that you can feel good about yourself or so that you can say you did and so that you can win theological arguments with whoever it is you want to feel better than. This is a book that we store up in our hearts and our minds so that we can be in touch with reality which is this God-charged environment. God is with us and his word is with us. Some of us aren't fighting temptation well because we're living in a place called not reality because we haven't had our minds actually shaped by God's word which is delivering to us the way the world actually is. If you wanna fight temptation like Jesus, it always involves hiding God's word in your heart. Not to earn something, not to prove something, but to come into proximity with and closeness with your father who made all things. The last one here is we see, um, he says, no, by love, in particular, in the Father's love. Let's, let's look back here in, verse, or in chapter 3. Read with me, starting in verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, or as the NIV says, my son who I love with whom I am well pleased. That the Father loves the Son and is pleased with the Son. And it is important to notice the order here, that this comes before Jesus succeeds in temptation. That Jesus is blessed and loved and assured and told, you are my son and nothing can change that. I am pleased in you and I love you and I'm connected to you and I'm with you and I'm for you and I'm here to help you live and my spirit is on you. And then Jesus walks into temptation and succeeds. Most of us, what I would consider is an inward legalistic pitch is saying that Jesus or the father might say verse 17 about me after I succeed in temptation. That I'm going to be tempted and tried and tested, and when I succeed, then God will love me. When I succeed, then God will be pleased with me. When I am more moral, then God will love me. When I fight the good fight, then Jesus will say, my beloved child and who I'm well pleased. That when I resist Satan and push him back and memorize scripture and do all the right things, then God will finally once and for all tell me, my son, my child, my daughter, and who I'm pleased Do you have the order right? Because so many of us are just perpetually, anxiously, insecurely trying to get God to love us by succeeding in saying no to temptation, trying so hard and in so many different ways and tips and tricks and resolutions that fail and new resolutions and this time it's for real and you know what? This time I'm going to take it serious and then I'll have God's approval in his favor. That is the opposite of the way that the entire gospel story works, in which God initiates with his unconditional love, and we then are empowered to serve. Some of you might even be here today trying to get God to love you, or trying to earn his favor, or trying to earn his approval, and I want you to know you can't do it. You are a miserable, awful savior and should stop trying to be your own savior. But there is a good savior, and his name is Jesus. Jesus. And this is what I mean when I say that he obeys by love and also for love. That the entire means that Jesus obeys by is the love of the Father. And this is what sets him up to be a good Savior. The fact that he obeys. But first I just want to take a step back and reflect for a moment on this whole means of justifying the ends thing. See, I think one of the dominant lies in our culture is what I would call pragmatism. So, you think pragmatics are good? That means thinking with your feet on the ground, being practical. But pragmatism is a teaching that says the ends justify the means. Whatever you got to do to get it done, if you got to hide some bodies to keep the peace, if you got to shuffle the money, you got to cut the corners, whatever it takes to get the good thing, go for it. And here's what Jesus says later in Matthew He says this. He says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Again, remember, Jesus here is being tempted to get good things in bad ways. What are the good things that you want so much that you're willing to get them in evil bad ways? What goes in this blank for you? What will it profit if it gains a man or woman? If he or she blank? forfeits his soul think about that this is an important question for us to ask and I have some prompts for us that might help us fill the blanks some of these might be you some of these might not be you but either way they're gonna sting so here we go what would profit a man if he gains an early retirement and forfeits his soul what would profit a man if he gains that new relationship and forfeits his soul What would it profit a man if he gains compliant, successful children and forfeits his soul? What will it profit a man if he gains a prestigious new job but forfeits his soul? What will it profit a man if he gains two conservative Supreme Court justices and forfeits his soul? What would it profit a man if he gains 10,000 Instagram followers and it forfeits his soul? What would it profit a man if he gains universal health care and forfeits his soul? What would it profit a man if he gains good standing community and forfeits his soul? See, I don't necessarily think any of those things are bad. I don't think that bread or fame or power are bad in themselves. But I think this is a big deal for evangelical Christians right now the amount of things that people are willing to defend or go to bat for for the sake of so-called good things, the ways that we justify or excuse our private sins for whatever that is, the way that we cut corners to get that thing, and we, we compromise our callings. We really do. We compromise our integrity. We compromise the way in which God has called us to live. We must remember that following Jesus is a way. It's not just a doctrine. It's a mode of existing What are some places that you might have compromised the means for the sake of the ends? Because good, solid, biblical ethics won't let us do that. That Jesus is concerned not just with good outcomes, but with a good way of doing the outcomes. This is one of our primary values as a church. That we want to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And the Lord's way is by love. I could put a slide up there that says, What good is it if a man gains a large church and loses his soul? And isn't that a danger for us? Just pandering, back rubs, tickling ears, we can't do it. We must do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. We can't compromise the means for the sake of the ends. Jesus is all about means. So here's what we see. this. So he does, by love and for love. Now I want us to kind of take a moment here and just notice what I mean. When I say for love, I mean that Jesus' obedience here is enabling him to be our savior. That's what it's doing. So think about this in this text. What happens if Jesus says yes to self-gratification in this moment? What happens if he sins in the wilderness? He is no longer a sinless savior. That the world goes to garbage instantly. That plan A is gone and there's no plan B. This is what's at stake In him fighting this temptation. What's also interesting here in this text is how one of the things Matthew does, he's a real literary genius in this moment. He's reminding us of how Adam was tempted by the tempter in the garden and he fails. And then also how Jesus called this people called Israel and they were tempted by the tempter in the wilderness and they fail. And here's Jesus, and one of the things we see in this text is that he's succeeding where Adam and Israel failed. That he's the new Adam. He's the new humanity, he's the new start, he's kicking off the new creation, and also he's the new greater Israel, that he is descendant of Israel, but he's the only faithful covenant keeper that Israel ever had. That They were supposed to be a light to the nations and they failed, they constantly are, are uh, f- falling for their own flesh, and Jesus here stands firm in the midst of temptation. But there's a similarity to how we see the devil work in each of these instances. And here's I want to just walk us through this. So here's how the devil works we're gonna see this in this passage the first thing he does is he twists the father's word this is what happens in genesis 3 and it's what happens in the old testament and it's what happens here notice with me in verse 6 satan says if you are the son of god throw yourself down for it is written and satan quotes scripture he will command his angels concerning you and on the hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone What does Satan do in Genesis 3? He tells Adam and Eve, did God really say? And then he contradicts the scripture. So he twists God's word, and he tempts in the middle of that. This should give us real pause that Satan quotes scripture. Because I tell you what, there's a lot of false teachers out there who would love to twist and manipulate scripture to enable us to say yes to our sin. You know why? Because we want them to say it we'll find teachers who will justify our sinfulness, and I'll go there and I'll give to their church because they make me feel good about my sin. Adam fails. He's silent. Eve takes the, takes the bait, takes the temptation. Israel fails in the wilderness. Jesus here actually quotes a section of scripture from right where Israel fails and says, you shall not put the Lord guard to your test, that Satan is a captain of misinterpreting and misapplying scripture to try and get people sneakily to fall and be okay with it the devil will twist the father's word just be careful about the tv you watch the radio you listen to the books you read because there's a great market out there for people who would love to twist scripture and get you to feel good about your sin there's buyers there's money to be made the devil capitalizes on insecurity. In Genesis, what happens is God tells Adam and Eve, "You are my image and likeness." In two chapters later, Satan says, "I can make you guys like God." Think like, if they weren't insecure in that moment, they would have been like, "I'm really like God." Your temptation sucks. You know that would have that would have worked, right? One of the things that even happens in terms of insecurity is in, in Exodus in the Egypt when they're leaving. Um, the people are saying, you know what, we had it better as slaves. Let's forget this whole freedom thing. They're, they're insecure about their present moment. But Jesus here is tempted. He just got told, you are my son, the heir of all things. The creator of the universe says, you're my son, meaning you're my heir apparent. You're the one who's getting all this. And Satan says, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth and all their glory. Jesus stands firm, not being tempted by Satan's insecurity, but recognizing that he already has been affirmed and secured and loved by the Father's voice, by the Father's word. He says, I don't need you to give me the kingdoms. I already have them. What are some of the insecurities you have that Satan's maybe speaking to, to try to get you to feel okay about sinning, by choosing another way? The next thing that the devil does is he's gonna talk about going fast, famous, and easy instead of going slow, unseen, and difficult. Jesus comes to earth and he knows his plan is to work a job that nobody notices for thirty years, teach and be misunderstood and not be listened to and be taken advantage of, and then slowly suffer and die for the sins of the world. That's that's what Jesus knows his plan is. It's death and suffering first, and life second. And Satan here says, there's a faster way. I could, you could just jump off this building and abracadabra, do some miracles, and these people will start following you. You don't need to suffer. You can skip that whole part. There's a quicker way. It is worth noticing that the only other time in Scripture, or at least in the, in the New Testament, that Jesus calls someone Satan is when, when in, later in Matthew, when Peter tells Jesus, Jesus goes, I'm going to suffer and die. And, Ma- and Peter says. No, Lord, may it never be. And Jesus calls Peter Satan. When people are telling Jesus there's an easy way, Jesus calls them Satan and says the way is suffering. If you want to follow Jesus, this is the way of costly, substitutional love where there are hard people to love, and we're gonna love them. We're not just gonna cut them out of our life and run away. We're gonna love them. These needy, clingy, never thankful people I'm not saying tolerate abuse, sometimes love means standing up to abusers, but I'm saying we cannot be this type of like easy path of least resistance people because that's not the Jesus way, that's the Satan way. Jesus, Satan wants you to believe the meaning of life is to be leisurely and comfortable and undisturbed in your little place that why would you ever get messy and love hard people because that's gonna be hard and Jesus says that is the only way. Are you embracing the lie of fast, famous, and easy over slow, unseen, and difficult? Because you can't check out of any grocery line without being told, lose 20 pounds in 10 days, seven quick ways to make your marriage better, quick seven, like everybody wants to sell the microwave version of humanity, and that's not how humans are designed to be. We're designed to be gardeners, slow and steady and daily and unseen and substitutionary in our life. Here's the last one is false promises. Satan tells Adam and Eve, You won't die. He doesn't deliver on that. Adam and Eve dies. He tells Adam and Eve, I can make you like God. He can't do that. Here, Satan tells Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. You know who doesn't have those to give away? Satan doesn't own the kingdoms of the earth. That's nonsense. A lot of people will say, like, oh, the world belongs to Satan, and they'll quote this verse. I'm like, you can't quote the liar and let that build your theology. That's not how this works. (laughs) Satan doesn't have the earth. The whole earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, says the psalmist. And here he is saying, Jesus, I'll give you the kingdoms. And Jesus could have been like, you're stupid, you don't have them to give. But this is the way that these false promises work. You know, like, you have a good desire, and you fulfill it, and and. You're lied to about how to fulfill it. Like, you know, every now and then, I get a really good longing for a carne asada burrito. You know, it's good. It's a good longing to have. Those are good. And I'm hungry, and I'm driving, and I see a sign that says, Taco Bell, beefy, cheesy burritos. You know, it's not beef and cheese burritos. It's beefy and cheesy burritos. (laughs) They're not saying it's beef and cheese. They're saying it's kind of, it's close to beef and cheese. It's close. (laughs) It's in the ballpark. There's like legal teams on this. It's not beef. You can't call it beef. Oh, beefy. Fine. You know it's beefy. You know, and you go, and you know what? And then you get it, and you know what? It overpromised. You know it didn't deliver on what I wanted. But that's what sin does. Is sin is like Taco Bell. You know, I'm, it it overpromises and underdelivers. Over promises and under delivers. Whenever I talk with someone who's struggling with pornography or struggling with, um, you know, lying or cheating or stealing or gambling, name a sin. There's a sense in which right before you do it, you're like, this is going to be the best. I'm into this. This is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been needing. And then you give in and then shame. Emptiness. It underpromises. I mean, it under delivers. What are some of the places that you've said yes to self-gratification and you've just been left like, man, because we got to learn. So I'm, I'm serious. All temptation is the result of good desires trying to be fulfilled in inordinate ways. That's what lust is. That's what adultery is. That's what lying is. We're looking for something good, and we fulfill it in unholy ways. Remember that picture of my dog I put up there? There's this full bowl of food that was better for him and he was choosing the false bowl of food. That's what sin is like. Satan's trying to promise something that he can't deliver on. He's trying to get us to think that there's a better way of doing this, but that's just not how it works. We want to be able to see through the false promises of Satan and really understand the way in which he's over-promising and under-delivering. Because there's only one person who can deliver on his promises, and that's the Lord Jesus only one person. And so we look at this text and how Jesus says no to self-gratification. That he totally has the power to turn that bread, those, those rocks into bread. He totally has the power to go up to the highest, most popular part of the temple, throw himself down and make a scene. He totally has the power to like, trick Satan by worshiping him or something like that and making it not a big deal. He totally has the power to do all of those things. But he is not willing to use his power to serve himself. He's only willing to use his power to serve his people. That he uses his privilege, his power, his position, whatever you want to call it. He uses all his resources to love, not to just self-gratify. And so we look at this text, and here's what I want us to recognize. Is that just as Jesus says no by love and for love, we can say no by love and for love. That when we are assured of the Father's love of us, when we are walking in the presence of the Spirit, when we have hidden the Father's love in our hearts, we recognize that he loves me no matter what. That my salvation is not on the line when I'm in resisting this temptation, but rather my intimacy with God is what I'm pursuing here. That my ability to love my neighbors I'm pursuing here. But think about this. When you're in the throes of temptation next time and you're saying, who is this not going to love if I say yes? Because there's no such thing as private sins. There's no such thing as saying yes to sin that does not somehow also harm your neighbor. That the whole of God's instruction is fulfilled in this, love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, even if we can't connect the dots, violating God's law is failing to love our neighbor. As we grow in wisdom and relationship and ability to see, we will begin to recognize the way our sin is not just doing bad things, but our sin is actually failing to love our neighbor. And if we misunderstand God's instruction, we're not gonna make that connection think about this in the middle of temptation can you notice the fact that you are loved by the father and that he's with you and can you think about the people you're called to love and how you're overspending overeating corner cutting fill in the blank whatever it is that it's actually getting in the way of you loving your neighbors see so much of this discussion about temptation and whatnot is in this kind of like right wrong kind of black and white understanding, and I want us to take it out of that primary context and put it in the context of these relationships. This is about love, disordered love, taking advantage of love, selfishly rejecting love. That's God's heart for this, that the instruction of the Lord is to teach us to love our neighbors. And so we're not just saying no to bad things because God said so, We're actually saying yes to God's way so that we can better love our neighbors. That's what this is all about. Can you say no by love and for love? Because I think that we can. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for the ways in which you're patient with us. Thank you very practically for your son who learned obedience through what he suffered in this wilderness. And I'm grateful for the fact that Jesus, in being tempted, considered us, considered the world, considered our salvation. That he didn't just say no to the desires of the flesh, but rather that he chose to walk in step with you. God, remind us of how much you love us and uh, help us love our neighbors this week. Amen.